Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And we just pray this morning that these words, formed by human lips and human words, will tell something of your beauty. In your name we pray. Amen. I feel I've messed my hair up. Never mind. My favourite time to sit and watch television in the week is 9pm on a Sunday, uh, no, on a Saturday evening for BBC Channel 4's European drama slot. Although I have to say at the moment there is a slight pull between the favourite slot that I might have because the Great Interior Design Challenge is back and that's on at 7pm Monday to Wednesday. Anyway, back to BBC4. Recently on BBC4, the third series of The Bridge has ended and the icy blasts and the grey skies of Scandinavia have made way for a warm Mediterranean breeze and brilliant sunshine as the Sicilian detective Inspector Salvo Montabano chases down criminals through olive groves and the imagined streets of the fictional town of Vigata in Sicily. Based on the detective novels of Andrea Camilleri, the series being aired at the moment is The Young Montabano, Montelebano, I can't say it, which is the prequel to another series simply called Inspector Monteberno. The young Monteberno is not to be confused with Inspector Monteberno. The young Monteberno sports a beard, and the older Inspector Monteberno is completely bold. He's also a dramatically different body shape to his younger counterpart, a situation many of us may empathise with. The very wonderful thing, though, about these two series of Inspector Monteberno is the storytelling. Each character that is introduced will, without doubt, have a lengthy story to tell. For example, Inspector Monteberno, young or more mature, may say to a witness that he is interviewing, So, Signora Ferrari, could you tell me why you went to visit Giuseppe Lamborghini on Wednesday? He doesn't speak like that. Well, says Signora Ferrari, Inspector, the reason I went to visit Giuseppe is because of something that happened 40 years ago. And the story will begin 40 years ago. I love it. It reminds me of being at university in Belfast when just the simple question of where the best place to buy a pint of milk might be is met with a story that involves a mother's cousin who lives next door to a woman whose sister will only buy milk from a certain shop on a certain road. I love a good story. And the two prayers of Hannah that we're looking at this morning sit firmly within an incredible story. Unceremoniously, Starkly even, we heard Hannah's first prayer read to us. Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. These passionate words of Hannah 
because they are passionate, as we'll come to see as you hear more about the story, have been called a psalm or a lament or a vow. Whatever the right terminology is for the cry of Hannah's heart, we can't really talk about this first prayer until we understand the story that the prayer was cried out of. So in true Inspector Monteberno's style, let me tell you where it all began. Like any woman's story that is lived within a patriarchal culture, Hannah's story begins with her husband. Hannah's husband is a man called Alcana. Unlike an Inspector Monteberno story, we're told nothing of her, Hannah's early life or of how her marriage came about. It'd be highly likely that her marriage to Elkanah was arranged, and one that actually, in Hannah's case, it would seem, wasn't a bad thing, as Elkanah really loved Hannah. And even though they were living in a culture that valued women primarily for their ability to have children, Elkanah seemed to love Hannah simply for just who she was. In verse 2, though, we read two sentences that completely set the background for Hannah's prayer. Elkanah had two wives, one called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. In these sentences, we're introduced to the sorrow that defined Hannah's life. Hannah was infertile, and the pain of this was unimaginable. Pain made even worse by the fact that Elkanah's second wife, Peninnah, possibly brought into the marriage because Hannah couldn't have children, was able to have children easily. At the time, a husband in Elkanah's circumstances was well within the bounds of boundaries of respectability and adding another wife. A man in this society had to have a son. His honor, his name, and his family's survival depended on it. No matter how much he loved Hannah, her feelings were secondary to the all-consuming goal of producing sons. So if you like, Penina rescued Elkanah's family line with her repeated success in bearing children. The birth of her first son saw her value increase while Hannah's standing in the community plummeted. Hannah may have had her husband's love and respect, but Penina was the one who held the respect of the community. Hannah's longing for a child and having to live in the shadow of Penina's repeated triumphs in childbearing must have been utterly excruciating. It's been interesting thinking about Hannah this week, whilst playing out on Facebook has been something called the Motherhood Challenge. Now, the premise of this challenge was to post pictures of your children that make you happy to be a mother. You were then meant to tag friends to your post who you thought were good mothers. They, in return, took on the challenge themselves by posting photos of their children and tagging more good mothers to join in. Well, you might tell from the slight tone of my voice, I found it a little uncomfortable. To me, you see, if you want to talk about a motherhood challenge, 
then it would seem more appropriate to acknowledge the roller coaster of emotions that must hit a woman each month when once again she's disappointed that she's not pregnant. A motherhood challenge would be the relentless tick-tock of a biological clock. To me, a challenge would be the longing for a partner and then a family to call your own when actually you're remaining very firmly single when you don't want to be. A motherhood challenge would be all the swollen tummies that seem to be everywhere, the invitations to baby showers, the birth announcements, mothering Sundays, miscarriages, and failed IVFs. Hannah would have known this sort of challenge. This woman who lived over 3,000 years ago would most definitely relate to the pain of many, that many of us will have experienced or are experiencing in this room this morning. Hannah's story tells us what it looks like and what it feels like to be human. Not one human being is exempt from suffering or difficult times. And this is what her prayer comes out of. We enter Hannah's story at a time of religious celebration. Once a year, we read that Elkanah took his family to the sanctuary at Shiloh. He would have brought his family to Shiloh in order to thank God for the good things of the past year, of the harvest, really, and ask him to bless the year to come. It would have been a time of great joy and celebration. Year after year, Hannah would have gone along to the festival. Each year, probably with another baby of Peninnah's joining the family, and each year highlighting very publicly Hannah's own empty arms. For Hannah, the festival of Shiloh had consistently become an occasion when her infertility was driven home. I was reading this week the most beautiful blog. Um, It's on a website or a blog site really called Saltwater and Honey, which is a group of bloggers who um, all get together and they all take it in turns to write blogs. And they're people who are all struggling or who are living or who are grieving or who are um, just affected by the issues of not having a child. One of these blogs wrote of how actually times of celebration and actually even just the simple pitching up to church every week is utterly utterly painful when you're childless. I quote from a story that one woman tells. She talks about how she'd been at church and how the speaker was talking about family. And as soon as I heard that word, my heart hardened. For years, the words family or church family have caused me so much pain. An identity celebrated by churches, but one that can so easily isolate those who are acutely aware of what they don't have. A label that sounds amazing and loving and accepting, but one that in reality can draw a line, establishing who belongs and who doesn't. Whether it's the preacher talking about how you can't really experience love 
until you become a parent. Being told that because the majority of people have kids, you've just got to endure the sermons on parenting. The women's conference leader who assumes everyone in the room understands the pain of childbirth. Or the leadership team measuring the success, measuring their success as a church by the number of families attending on a Sunday. It feels as though sometimes, the blogger writes, the church's view of family has become very small. My view of family had become very small, so small that at times I avoided church because I believed I didn't belong and I know I'm not the only one. The most common story I hear from childless Christians is one of isolation, not from secular society, but from their church family because it represents the most painful reminder of what they don't have. Hannah would know something of what that feels like. And Hannah's story tells us that actually her pain was intensified deliberately by Penina taunting her cruelly, rubbing it in, and never letting her forget that God hadn't given her children. In fact, her words were basically, where is your God? Words that were meant to stir up doubts in Hannah and make her think that she was wasting her time trusting in God. Hannah's pain was also intensified unwittingly by Elkanah, her husband. Although he loved her totally, he was completely insensitive for her longing for a child. As far as babies were concerned, he was sorted. He'd addressed their issues of infertility by marrying a second wife. For him, barrenness was a thing of the past. He had heirs, his family's future was secure, and there was no need for Hannah to worry about having children anymore. Wasn't he enough for her? Why was she crying? Why didn't she want to eat? Why was she so depressed? Wasn't his love better than 10 sons? His look on the bright side approach simply heaped more pain on one who was an already collapsing under the deep weight of sorrow. Eugene Peterson describes Hannah as someone who had a large life. Large because she lived in the largeness of God. God was the country in which she lived. And probably the thing that bothered her most, more than Penina's torts, more than Elkanah's insensitivity, was the overriding reality that God had kept her from bearing children. Twice in Hannah's story, the narrator states the fact that the Lord had closed her womb. These aren't easy words to read. I could explain them away briefly by saying that they're words that come out of a patriarchal culture that always blamed the woman for the lack of a child, a society that didn't recognize that men could be infertile too, but it doesn't feel right to do that here. We know that Elkanah can father children. Hannah believes that God is responsible for her infertility. Had she been abandoned by him, had he left her in her suffering, if he was the one who'd closed her womb, then surely he must be the one to open it. And so this year at Shiloh, when our story takes place, 
After the family had finished eating, the Bible tells us that Hannah stood up and she went to the Lord's house. Enough was enough. We're told that Eli, the priest, was sitting at the door. Hannah paid no attention to him. She just walked past, and in her deep anguish and pain, weeping bitterly, she prayed to the Lord, Lord Almighty, if only you will look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. There's so much that we can learn from the way that Hannah prays. I want to look very quickly at three things. Firstly, Hannah's story makes it clear that she'd absolutely reached the end of her tether. She is angry. She is bitter. She is worn down, exhausted. And while for many of us, these emotions might actually keep us away from approaching God, for Hannah, these are the emotions that drive her to him. Not for a moment does she think that God will be offended by her feelings. So... If this morning you recognize in yourself some of the feelings that Hannah was experiencing about situations in your life, this isn't a time to be silent. Hannah's prayer tells us, use your emotions, use them as a catalyst to drive you to God. I think that one of the strongest ways that we see God working in Hannah's life is that she lets all the things that had been hurting her for far too long just bring her to her knees. The endless suffering which threatened to destroy her faith in God actually served the opposite purpose of driving her to him in remarkable, relentless faith. The Hannah that weeps and prays is anything but hard and cold towards God. This is a powerful sign that God's active in her life. This morning, if you're angry, if you're bitter, if you're exhausted, if you're lonely, if you're ill, if you are grieving, if life's not going the way that you hoped it would, if maybe you're suffering in the same way that Hannah is, longing for a child, use these emotions as a cue to pray, to turn towards God, to run to him, not turn away and avoid him. Hannah had been carrying all the feelings associated with her infertility for many years, too long. Some of us in this room this morning have been carrying things for too long. Today might be the day that we finally give them voice. The second thing that we can learn from Hannah's prayer is that it was messy. 
Admittedly, the words that we've just read seem to be very ordered and very succinct, but the fact that Hannah was crying bitterly and that Eli the priest actually thought that she was drunk as he watched her pray suggests that Hannah wasn't worried at all about the way in which she was presenting herself to God. She just laid it all out there. Her prayer was honest. It was utterly human. It wasn't trying to impress. It simply declared in all its rawness that she had come to the end of herself. As a church, we're wanting to develop a culture of prayer, to have a culture of prayer. Romans tells us that sometimes when things seem too big and we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, that he intercedes for us through wordless groans. I think that in the way we see Hannah pray, we see something of this groaning, the longing for things to be different. And it's okay that we don't come with perfectly formed sentences and coherent and polite words. Simon Gillibo wrote from Burundi this week, and he told the story of how the other day he heard someone pray, Thank you, Lord, that all our hope is gone. Simon writes of how he was thinking, well, that's a crazy prayer. But then the person praying carried on. We have nothing left but you. Hannah invites us to learn to pray as though we have nothing left but God. This is a culture of prayer that we come to God with nothing other than who we are. This is the absolute opposite of our Instagram perfect lives. This is willing to be vulnerable, willing to be human, longing to be changed. And the third thing that we learn from Hannah's prayer is that Hannah prays in faith. And she prays believing that God sees her. She believes that he has seen all that she's been through and all the pain that she's in. There's not one person here this morning that God doesn't see. There's nothing that you have gone through or that you are going through that he doesn't know about. You don't need to set the scene for him as I've set the scene for you in regards to Hannah's pain. He just knows. Believing that God sees her, Hannah asks God for the cry of her heart. She asks him for a son. Hannah asks God to transform the impossible places. There is no prayer too big for God. We can ask him into the situations of our life that seem impossible. Nothing is off limits. It's also important to recognize that actually no prayer is too small either. This doesn't always mean that our prayers will be answered yes. One thing to recognize from Hannah's prayer is that for years and years, it remained unanswered. When it seemed that God was doing nothing at all though, God was actually doing something very mighty in Hannah's heart. He was building faith in her. In the silence of your unanswered prayers, have you noticed, do you believe that God is still very much at work in your life? 
that he's using the situations that are difficult and painful to change you, maybe humble you, maybe help you to love, love others more, maybe to draw you closer to him, maybe to make you more like him. This is where we as the church come in to support each other in our prayers. When prayers don't get answered or, or as we want, or the prayers that we have take a long time to be answered, we need to be there for each other. As Brené Brown puts it, I went to church thinking it would be like an epidural, that it would take the pain away. But the church isn't like an epidural. It's like a midwife. I thought faith would say, I'll take away the pain and discomfort. But what it ended up saying was, I'll sit with you in it. I think as we learn what it is to develop a culture of prayer, we also need to learn what it is to sit alongside one another in prayer and build faith in each other, point each other, back to God. And maybe in these prayers and in these sitting alongside each other, maybe we could reimagine for those who may find church a difficult place to sit and wait, actually what family looks like. The blogger that I was talking, I was quoting just before, said this, the family Jesus talks of is one that I, as a childless woman, can belong to as an equal member. It's one I actually want to be part of as well. On one day, surrounded by crowds of people, Jesus redefined the word family. He made it bigger and better and more beautiful. It wasn't just an attractive strapline tag to his vision statement to make him sound more inclusive. He meant it, he lived it out. An unmarried, childless man created the biggest family the world has ever seen, leaving no one on the outside. You don't have to wait until you're married or a parent to understand God's love. You don't need to have grown up with loving parents or have children to understand how to be a family. If you love God and want to follow him, you're in. It's as simple as that. There's so much more that we could say about Hannah's first prayer, but time is totally escaping us, as it always does whenever I stand up to speak. Um, we need to be able to turn really quickly to Hannah's second prayer. But before we leave this part of Hannah's story, though, it's important that we recognize that she does something unusual in her prayer. She makes a vow. After bringing before God with tears and passions her request for a son, she then in her next breath vows to give the child back to God. Carolyn Custis James write, I know that Hannah is widely regarded as a role model because of her prayer life, but I find it hard to relate to Hannah's style of praying. First she prays for a child, I understand that part, but then in the same breath she vows to give him up, which makes no sense to me. Vows aren't usually recommended to have as part of our prayers. The Old Testament draws attention to the fact that making promises is a dangerous business. But for Hannah, the commentator and theologian John Goldingay says it works. 
You see, Hannah's situation has always held an extra emphasis. It's clear from the way that her story is told that the baby she longs for and the baby she finally has because God does answer her prayer is going to be someone very strategic in salvation history. Hannah's personal prayer of lament was always destined to become a prayer of the kingdom of God. The motherhood challenge, to coin Facebook's phrase, was never just going to involve having a child for Hannah. It was also going to involve losing one. Hannah's second prayer in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel is one of remarkable faithfulness and sobering devotion. We've read that Hannah hasn't been to Shiloh for a few years as she's been weaning Samuel. And the boy is now about three or four years old. And she and he make the journey to Shiloh, knowing that this will be the last time that they're together. With her little child nestled into her side, Hannah launches into a prayer of incredible praise to God. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is one rock. There is no rock like our God. This is a prayer of thanksgiving to God for answering her prayers. But it's also a prayer of testimony to the people gathered at the festival. This prayer of Hannah teaches us, first and foremost, that when God answers our prayers, we're to delight in him, we're to praise him, and we're to thank him. The fact that Hannah is standing up in a public place declaring her thanks and praise to God also shows that answered prayer asks us to tell others of God's work in our life. Hannah's second prayer is not just one of thanksgiving, It's one of testimony. Again, thinking of how we want to develop a culture of prayer at P's and G's, Hannah teaches us that personal testimony must must form part of that culture. Hearing of how God works in individual lives is incredibly encouraging. It builds faith and hope in us. And I was wondering if we could begin something of this today. Maybe there is something that you are incredibly grateful to God for. A prayer that you've seen him answer or a way that you know he's working in your life. I wonder whether you could be really brave and whether you could come up and share it with one of the prayer team who will be at the front in the last song or come to me or come to Dave. Can we begin to share with one another what God is doing among us. Throughout her testimony, Hannah's child was listening to her prayer. I wonder what Hannah had told Samuel about her faith in God. Had she whispered to him at bedtime the fact that God had given him to her as an answer to prayer? Did she tell him of how her belief in God held her through her barrenness? Would this same theology one day guide Samuel to walk with God through the difficult times that his nation would endure? Had she sung to him of God's faithfulness and had she told him of God's love, of how God looked down on the lowly 
and he used the weak to do great things. Had she told him that he was special, that a different life had been mapped out for him if he wanted to take it, had she inspired him with the fact that he was God's child and that God had plans to change the world through Samuel, was it her theology that Samuel took into Israel's throne room and was it her testimony of God that had shaped the way that he would mentor Israel's first kings? Had she mentioned it to him that she'd always felt that her years of prayer were for something much bigger than herself? Did she really sense that God had his hand on her son? And was it this sense that gave her the courage to let him go? Firm in the knowledge that God would care for him as she would, because he had cared for her all the days of her life. Recently, I have heard the story of a mother who, like Hannah, gave up her son. This woman's sacrifice was in order that he might escape danger and have the hope of a future. It's a sacrifice that I'm profoundly humbled by, and she is a woman who I don't know, but I find utterly inspirational. I'm not sure that I could be that brave, Although Hannah's prayer doesn't vaguely mention the sacrifice that she's about to make in regards to Samuel, we know from all that we have read of Hannah that this is going to be very costly to her. But such is Hannah's belief in God and his ways of answering prayer. For her, the birth of Samuel meant everything would change, not just for her life, but for the life of all people. Hannah's prayer is deeply prophetic. It speaks of a time that's yet to come, a time when enemies will be banished and the hungry will be fed. It talks of Israel's political situation and it speaks of great hope. Hannah's prayer ultimately points to the future and anticipates God's power to answer prayer and change things. In the light of Hannah's prayer, we can be confident that our answered prayers, whether we're aware of it or not, are testament to the fact that God is working in our world. Our experiences of God in our everyday lives tell a story way beyond us. Our testimonies of God's faithfulness and love highlight the fact that one day, just as Hannah prayed, the hungry will be fed, the humble lifted high, those who are weak will be strengthened, that one day there really will be no more sorrow, no more sadness, no more sickness, no more disappointment, no more wars, and no more death. I feel that it's been a whistle-stop tour through the prayers of Hannah. We could have said a lot more. You'll be very glad that I'm not. But let's leave this morning assured that we have a God who longs for us, no matter how we're feeling, to turn towards him. We have a God that calls us to come as we are. We have a God that sees each and every one of us. He knows what's going on in our lives and he knows the prayers of our hearts. We have a God who longs for us to bring our prayers to him, 
even the ones that seem impossible. And we have a God who delights in the praise and thanksgiving of his people and his work in us and his faithfulness to us is testament to the fact that one day everything will change. Amen.